Hey, if you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Use promo code STUFF. 20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. Hey, everybody, if you've been looking for love at first sight, it's closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to June 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive and the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. Pedigree knows that bringing a dog into your home not only opens their heart, it can open yours too. Visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more and see full terms and conditions. Hey, March is tripod month, my friend, and you know what that means. Yes, that means it's time to let people know about your favorite podcasts, just to share the sheer joy of podcast listening. That's right. It's T-R-Y pod. Still a nascent industry. A lot of people don't know what podcasts are. Right. And it helps everybody out if you would go out and just say, hey, family member who I see at Thanksgiving once a year, right? you should try out this thing called a podcast. Here's what they are. Here's a cool show you should try, and here's how to get it. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be our show. Just any podcast you like in general that you think someone else would like, just share it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, get on board the tripod train. (laughs) Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. Sitting across from me is Charles W. Chuck Bryant, looking so sharp today, dudes. Wrapped in so my, sharp. Wrapped in my herringbone linen. I thought that was an infinity scarf. <laughs> You're wearing it like an infinity scarf. That's the second infinity scarf joke you've made. Although one was live on stage, mm-hmm. where you, uh, uh, well, I immediately you felt a little regretted bad. it. Yeah, you sort of accidentally made fun of the some, lady there on the first. Row. Yeah, some lady was like, "What's wrong with infinity <laughs> scarves?" And I looked over, and lo and behold, she was wearing an infinity scarf. Yeah, I backpedaled from that pretty fast. I don't get why. Why is it called an infinity scarf? Because it looks as if it never ends. Uh, I think it's a scarf that is sewn together. It's like a ring. Okay, <laughs> that's all. <laughs> okay. It's not a good name for it. All right. For not a great invention. Like an infinity pool. It, that never ends. Like you can swim and swim forever. Yeah, it looks as if I just call them rich person pools. Well, yeah. Not like my above ground, my sweet <laughs> right. above ground pool in the back. The Rustinator. <laughs> yeah. The Hick. <laughs> right next to the trampoline. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I think we've insulted enough people. <laughs> Well, that was a Simpsons reference. Technically, they the insulted people first. And the hick. Yeah. Um, but yes, we did anyway. So let's talk Shroud of Turin, Chuck. Are you familiar? What made you th- pick this? The Easter? No. It's just timing. Although, heck, that's great timing, huh? Seriously? It yeah. Wasn't- I, it was, uh, to be honest, I was listening to an episode of uh, WTF with Mark Marin, uh-huh. and he it's an older episode. We get was, all of our ideas from Mark Marin. <laughs> we do. Uh, I'm growing a mustache. Well, I've grown it. I'm just going to shave the beard. Right, yeah. Uh, he was interviewing William Friedkin, the director. Right. And uh, who, as it turns out, is quite chatty. <laughs> did, did he not stop talking the whole time? He talked a lot. Wow. It was a really good interview. Well, but, yeah, that's what you want out of an interviewee. Yeah, sure. Um, but he saw the Shroud of Turin. In person, 
and he described the experience. And I thought, why haven't we done one on that? That's pretty important, mysterious relic. What was his reaction to it? He he wept. So that's that's actually something that's called Jerusalem syndrome. Yeah, he he was incredibly moved, and he's not especially. Well, he talked a lot about Jesus specifically, but said that he's not religious, but he really has a thing for Jesus. <laughs> huh. Like he doesn't identify as a Christian, but he really uh, he just is a big fan of Jesus in his G- work. A Jesus file, sure. Which is you know sure a lot of people like that. I think. Well, yeah. There's even um, Messianic Jews, Jews for Jesus. Yeah. Uh, and apparently William Friedkin. I mean, by all accounts. Those are the two categories. <laughs> by all accounts, Jesus, the historical figure, is a pretty stand-up guy. Sure. You know? Sure. And I think, well, let's just stop dancing around this, okay? We're not a, a religious podcast. Oh, we're not? No. <laughs> Every time we've ever done a religious episode, we've gotten so much blowback from every single thing we gotten wrong. Sure. That we're like, our structure is not really set up to, to podcast on religion very much. Yeah. The Shroud of Turin is such an interesting and contentious flashpoint where science and religion meet. Yeah. And butt heads. Yeah, big time. That we just couldn't possibly pretend like it doesn't exist. It's too interesting. Yeah, agreed. And I can imagine that William Friedkin wept when he saw the Shroud of Turin. I would love to see the Shroud of Turin myself. Um, I, I don't. I have no idea what my reaction would be, but I wouldn't be all that surprised if I did weep when I saw it. Sure. Whatever the Shroud of Turin is, it is probably the most venerated object in the world. Mm, yeah, perhaps. It's at least among the top two or three. Sure. Okay, give me that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the idea that so many people look at this thing with love and awe and amazement, that it somehow imbues it with the very stuff that they that it's venerated for in yeah, some power. weird way. Yeah. And I can imagine that even as an atheist, you would get hit by that. Well, it'd be to me like uh, looking at a at a great painting or something. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say that it is a painting, even though some people say it is a painting, which we'll get to. Right. But you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, just moved by seeing the Mona Lisa. Yeah. Or being like, I thought I was bigger than that. Yeah. I was a little underwhelmed. Well, the, the, that's the same thing. The Jerusalem syndrome is, typically happens when you go to a very holy site and you're overcome, but right. it can also happen when you're looking at art as well. All right. It is a 50. If you don't know what it is and you're hearing us go on and on about crying, <laughs> Shroud of Turin. It is a 53 square foot uh, piece of linen. It's a rectangle. I think it's about three feet by 14 feet. Yeah. And it is, like I said, herringbone twill. Uh, faint brownish image that, uh, and we'll get into the, some of the more interesting finer points. Mm-hmm. But uh, when photographed, the negative image is, is a very clear image of a man, naked man, with his arms folded over his uh, groin area. Tastefully, <laughs> right? Add. Yeah. Uh, beard, mustache, shoulder-length hair parted in the middle, um, and you know, looks like that. If you grew up in the Southern Baptist Church, looks like that picture of Jesus hanging on the wall, right? That that I grew up with, or your friend that you went to that three eleven show back in nineteen ninety seven. And there are stains in areas on the linen consistent with uh, crucifixion wounds. Yes, well, which we'll get to. Because it's very important. All of this is, I feel like we're going to be teasing this out 
throughout. Well, let's stop. Let's start at the very beginning of all this, okay? okay? If you're a believer in that the Shroud of Turin is a legitimate religious artifact. That is to say that Jesus Christ was wrapped in it. After and, his crucifixion. And buried in it. Right. In Jerusalem. And that is indeed his image. So when he died, he, and this is Jesus we're talking about. Still. Not William Friedkin. Right. He's still alive. Right. Is he? Yeah. When Jesus died and was interred, or entombed, I'm sorry, uh, after three days, his apostles went and checked on him, and they found he wasn't there. Right. He had ascended into heaven. This just happened to be what we now celebrate as Easter. Yeah, and uh, boy, really, this is going to come out right around then, isn't it? Yeah. And Easter celebrates, the re- among Christians, the resurrection of Christ after his death. Yes. Uh, he died, he was crucified on Good Friday. He is uh, found to be have been resurrected up into heaven uh, on Easter Sunday. Jesus wasn't there. His body was gone. But according to legend, they found shrouds. Right. Still there, his burial shroud. So the idea is, is that his burial shroud was taken out of his tomb mm-hmm. um, and venerated from the get-go, basically held on to and moved from, uh, I guess, the uh, from Jerusalem out to, where did it make its second trip to? Uh, I believe from there it went straight to Turkey, uh, Constantinople, and it was there for several hundred years. Right, it was in the possession of some of the um, sultans there. Yeah, and then the crusaders came along and said, we'll be taking that and whatever else we want. Yeah. And we're going to move it to Athens, Greece, and it was there. Um, or actually, I don't know if the crusaders took it. Maybe it was smuggled out, but crusaders sacked the town. I saw both. Okay. Well, the, the history is a bit murky until the mid-14th century. Right, it is. So, in, And you would think that if the crusaders had taken it, they would have taken it back to Europe because that's where they hailed from. They wouldn't have taken it down to Athens, Greece. But supposedly it spent several centuries between the Crusades and about the 13th century in Greece. And somehow, some way, it made its way to France, right? Yeah, a a French knight. And I think this is where it gets a little more solid Mm -hmm. in its uh, travels. Uh, Geoffroy de Charny. De Charny? Um took it to France, about 130 miles outside of Paris, and um, eventually it mount, it made its way to its final home in Turin, Italy, mm-hmm. and where it's been there ever since. Yeah, at the Cathedral of St. John the Baptist. Yeah, 1578 is when it landed there, and it's still there, and you can go look at it. I think it went on tour for a little while within the last few years, right? With Van Halen. <laughs> uh yeah, it was on display as a part of a traveling exhibit. Was it traveling or was it just on display in turn? No, I think it traveled. But That's I'm, very surprising. But here's what I'm going on is William Friedkin's account. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> so I'm not sure, but I do know that um, it, more people saw it in the last like few years mm-hmm. than ever before. Yeah. Uh, ever before very, very recent times because apparently yeah. um, for many centuries it was on public display. Yeah, you just have to go to Turin. Right. Go into that church. Right. Uh, and they would, you know, probably ask you a series of questions before you entered. Right. And as you exited. They're like, what kind of fish is this? <laughs> it's a Jesus fish. Come on back. Uh, the Catholic Church does not have an official stand on the authenticity of the shroud, but, um, 
Chope, uh, Chope? Pope John Paul, <laughs> the Chopester, in 1998 said, you know, we trust science basically to, to keep studying this thing. Yeah, the church, um, I think used to have an official position on it until I think around 1988. Yeah. And they said, you know what, whatever it is, we still believe that you Catholics or Christians should venerate this thing because at the very least it's symbolic of Christ's suffering on the cross. Right. Um, but we're not going to say either way, we're the Catholic Church. Thank you. Good night. <laughs> I think is how it ended. End That's transmission. Right. That's how uh, Pope John Paul <laughs> ended all of his speeches. Um, all right. Let, let's take a little break here. You want to? Yeah. And we'll talk a, a bit about the early science of the Shroud of Turin. Hey there, are you thirsty? Well, before you take a sip, have you stopped to think about what's in your water? Many conventional bottled waters contain PFAS, harmful substances known as forever chemicals. But you can drink water as clean as nature intended. Richard's rainwater collects 100% pure, refreshing drops of rain. Yes, it really is rain, everybody. This rain is caught clean before it hits the ground or becomes polluted with pesticides and contaminants commonly found in groundwater. Yep, Richard's rainwater is naturally pure with no need for harsh chemicals or additives. That means no added fluoride, no chlorine, no forever chemicals, no microplastics, no nothing. And you can enjoy the clean taste of Richard's still rainwater and the long-lasting cold-pressured bubbles of Richard's sparkling rainwater. Just visit richardsrainwater.com to find a retailer near you. That's richardsrainwater.com. And we even have a special offer, don't we, Josh? Yeah, text STUFF to 2512-928887 and you'll get $2 off a 12-pack case of Richard's rainwater. Sip the sky. Hey everybody, we're here to tell you about Viator, a tool that you can use to plan and book travel experiences around the world. That's right. The Viator app and website make it easy to explore 300,000 plus travel experiences so you can discover what's out there no matter where you're traveling or what you're interested in. Yep. Viator can help you plan better travel experiences. 300,000 plus travel experiences to choose from means you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. That's right. You can also enjoy real traveler reviews to get insider information from people who've already been on the experience that you're considering. Plus, you get free cancellation that helps you plan for the unexpected. Yeah, and Viator offers 24-7 customer service, so you know you'll get support at any hour if things aren't going as planned. So download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find the perfect travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Learning stuff with Joshua and Charles. Stuff you so, Chuck, we were saying um, the, the shroud, as far as the Catholics are concerned, it, the shroud didn't really exist until 1353 when Geoffrey de Charnay came up with it, right? Yes. So that's the beginning of its documented existence, that the Shroud of Turin at least goes back on the record to 1353, which makes it pretty awesome in and of itself, right? Sure. And for centuries and centuries, people saw it, people looked at it, I'm sure they kissed it and wept over it and everything. And then it wasn't until, the I think, the 19th century, uh, or at least the 20th century, that it was really started to move 
out of public display and started to be cared for and preserved a little more, I think. And that's when science kind of started to come around, specifically starting in 1898, right? Yeah, that was the first, uh, like if you, if you look at just the regular image of the Shroud of Turin, mm-hmm. not the negative photographic image, it, you know, you sort of see an image of a person. But in 1898, like you said, there was a amateur photographer in Italy named, uh, Secondo Pia. That means the second Pia. <laughs> he had an older sibling. He took a picture. He was first, though. No, Primo. Primo, that's right. Have you ever seen Big Night? <laughs> that Stanley Tucci yeah. movie? Great movie. Yeah, Secondo and Primo. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Man, I want to see that again. I haven't seen it since it was out. Have you ever heard um that Famke Jansen, you know, the actress? Yeah. Does her name mean uh, female or girl in Danish? I have no idea. I think it might. Because <laughs> that means her name is Girl Jansen. Interesting. That's what her parents named her, if that's what that means. All right. Sorry. That's okay. Um, so Secundo took this photo um, when he was developing it. He saw the reverse negative and went, wow, mamma mia. <laughs> <laughs> and what he saw was that much more clear image of a man, of the likeness of a, of a human being right. in much more detail. He was accused of a forgery, of course, out of the gate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it wasn't fully clear till like the 1930s when... Uh, more photographers did the same thing, and they yeah. were like, "It's just a negative image." Right. Let the guy up. Yeah. <laughs> right. They're like, "All right, fine, you win this round." Secundo. Yeah. So this negative image really kicked off like an even greater interest in the Shroud of Turin. I think up to that point, um, people of science had just been kind of like, "Yeah, yeah, sure, that's exactly what it is. It looks definitely like a, a burial shroud." Right. When they saw that, though, that that negative. It's really difficult to avoid the fact that it is clearly the image of a man, like you described at the beginning. Yeah, it's not Jesus on toast. No, or, it's or not on, a Rorschach test. <laughs> or like, on uh, my uh, the wall of the house I'm demoing. Right. From you know. Or this grilled cheese I made. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's very clear. No, it's, it is, and it's universally recognized as that. It's not like a, it kind of looks like this. It's that's. That's what that is. So much so that um, even skeptics say, well, then it was just a painting or something like that by some artist. Right. But just like that 1898 photograph by Secondo Pia, um, he, we've – our new techniques and tricks and software that we use as far as photography goes and images goes is starting to unlock even more weirdness of it too, right? So if you take the um, – the lightness and darkness patterns yeah and turn them into like three dimensions mm-hmm. it actually reveals very clearly the three-dimensional shape of a face which is kind of surprising because that would mean that if it were a painting somebody had to have painted on a face with just the right amount of darkness in places where that would have been closest to the cloth uh-huh. and a lighter amounts in places that would have been further away from the cloth so that when you did look at it on this light gradient map, it would appear in, in perfect three dimension. That's a bizarre little thing, don't you think? For sure. Uh, as far as real study, um, it took all the way until almost 1970, 1969, when scientists could finally, I mean, for decades, people had done... Um, what they call indirect analysis. So basically, you know, I'm looking at it and I'm thinking about it. 
and I'm talking about it. <laughs> but as far as actually getting your hands on it, it was 1969 when, um, like you said, that they needed to preserve this thing. So they brought in a team of, uh, of scientists to say, Hey, how do we preserve this thing? We'll let you touch it. And they all went, Ooh, <laughs> yeah. that sounds good to me. Touch it with your eyes. <laughs> uh, so they formed the, uh, shroud. We're always laughing about how the ac- an acronyms work out perfect. <laughs> this is not that. This is acronym. not that. The Shroud of Turn Research Project or STERP. Uh, <laughs> they had five days. Of continuous access in 1978. Like 24 hours a day for five days. Yeah, so this is nine years after the first scientists were allowed to touch it. I guess they formed this thing and mm-hmm. they, you know, of course what they did was they didn't say like, all right, well, we'll work eight or nine hours a day, kick back, have some dinner and then sleep sure. and get up and start over. Have one of those eight course Italian <laughs> meals. They split up into teams so they could work nonstop <clears throat> around the clock. They had 33 members from all over the spectrum of science. Uh, 20 major research institutions along with uh, a team of European scientists who observed. I guess they sat there with their arms folded and just like, you know, went, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. every 10 minutes. They were the ones that brought the good espresso. The U.S.-led <laughs> team were like, we don't know where you get that around here. Not the kind of espresso you spit out into a napkin. like in the- <laughs> <laughs> What was that? It was in uh, Mulholland Drive. Yeah. What a great scene. So good. Um so here's what their report said. We need like a bombshell effect here. Okay. <laughs> uh, quote, the shroud image is that of a real human form of a scourged, scourged, crucified man. Yeah, a whip with like um, several flays on the end. And Cat I of think, nine tails. And I think it has like um, like rocks or something tied onto the end of the flays. It's- yeah. It's terrible. Stuff. Very bad. Crucifixion. We we could do a podcast on that. Yeah, you know something uh, that came out of this research for me was: do you have to be a real sob to crucify a human being? Yeah. Whether it's the son of God or some criminal, criminal, sure, whatever. Yeah. You should. The idea that the the Romans used to do that is just it, it yeah, makes slow, my ear bleed. Slow torture until you die. In but just a variety the worst, of ways. the worst kind. Yeah, yeah. man. Um, so uh, they continue to say it is not the product of an artist. Um, the blood stains are composed of hemoglobin, and also give a positive test for serum, uh, albumin, and um, despite this, they said it is a mystery because no combination of physical, chemical, biological, or medical circumstances can adequately uh, adequately account for the image. Right, so that's their official report from that first scientific inquiry. Yeah, published in 1981, and these definitely were men of science. But the Sterp team <laughs> was also, um, and it's still today, it has is criticized for. Uh, I guess the way it's put is, they were a team of scientist believers, like they were all legitimate scientists, but they also legitimately believed the Shroud of Turin was the burial shroud of Christ that had been some way or another miraculously imbued with Christ's image upon his ascension to heaven. Yeah, I get the feeling a lot of this research is like, well, let's get a team in here to debunk it. Let's get a team in here to you know, verify it. Right. You know? Right. And and the, there were skeptics on the STERP team, but they 
they apparently didn't have as full access as the believers did. Oh, really? And there, there was a lot of like infighting and backbiting among the team. But one thing that's universally agreed on by the members of the team, skeptics and believers alike, is that the Vatican itself did not try to influence the outcome of these tests. Right. So at the very least, back in 1978, they were willing to just say, hey, whatever, whatever you find is what you find. Yeah. Um, we're still going to love the Shroud no matter what, right? I thought the thing you were going to say was the one thing they all agreed on was that those Sturt t-shirts didn't really work out very well. <laughs> <laughs> they they argued about the name a lot. Yeah. But the Sturt team is still, their findings are still criticized. And one of the things that's very much criticized is the idea that there's no artificial pigments on the Shroud. Right. And that the blood stains are actually blood. Right. For an alternative hypothesis or an alternative um Examination. There's a guy named uh, Walter McClune. Did you did you run into him? Yeah, in the hallway. <laughs> it was very ironic. Well, he's also very dead, so that's odd well, that that happened. I should have mentioned it was the ghost of Dr. McCrone. McCrone. That's I'm sorry. That's it. So Walter McCrone was. I was like, is this guy? You know, is he legit? He's probably the most legitimate scientist of the 20th century. Oh wow! Like he he published and edited. A uh, um, a peer-reviewed journal on microscopy and microscopic investigation. It's called Scop This, <laughs> right? With an exclamation point. Yeah, um, he uh, it, it was just he's a, a legitimate scientist. So let me just say that, and he did some examination of the Turin shroud, and he found no, there's actually no blood on this at all. And the, what you're, what, what looks to be blood is actually red ochre pigment. Yeah. Vermilion. And then a, uh, temp, tempera, um, binder. Yeah. And this was in the late seventies, early eighties. And he said, um, basically he could account for everything in there as something that would have been in a paint from the 1350s. Right. Uh, whereas other folks have said, no, actually that iron in there, that's old hemoglobin. That's from the hemoglobin. And he said, no, it's not. Yeah, he, he didn't bend. So the idea, though, that they, he did find red ochre and vermilion pigment, you think, okay, well, case closed. Right. Here, like, this is a great example of the Shroud of Turin. It is not case closed. It's never going to be case closed. No, it's not. Chemists, molecular biologists, geneticists, you could throw every single scientist that you can possibly think of at this thing. Mm-hmm. And they can find whatever they want to find. And you're going to have another team who finds the other contrary findings. And neither group is going to read one another's publications except the most hardcore people carrying out these experiments. But people like you and I have no idea whether... Wait, was there blood found on it? Yeah. Um, what were the findings about the red ochre? Did he just surmise that it was red ochre pigment because he found all the stuff that makes up red ochre pigment? Or did he actually find red ochre pigment? Like, this is the kind of thing that keeps the Shroud of Turin uh, a mystery. Well, yeah, I mean, there have been, he's not the only one to have studied whether or not it was blood. There have been other people that said, uh, who's it? Heller and Adler mm-hmm. said, Oh, it's blood, and it's we, it's AB blood type. Yes. We can even tell you that. Right. And then someone else would come along and say, it's not blood, or if it was, you certainly can't tell the blood type, or whether or not it's blood from the person 
who might have been wrapped in the shroud or blood from someone handling it. That's a or, big one. Or animal blood. Yeah. There's a there's a big um criticism of that that it was contamination from somebody who was actually analyzing the the samples. Yeah, cuz well as we'll see later on, a lot of people touched this thing over the years. Right. And then other skeptics point to it and say, "Dude, you can see it's not blood. That's not blood." Blood turns black, or at least such such a dark, deep brown over the years mm-hmm. that it looks black to the human eye. This looks like blood. That's not what blood looks like once it dries and ages on cloth. So there's a lot of different arguments either side. Yeah. But neither one is compelling enough to to convince the other side that they're correct. Correct. And so it, it just goes on and on. And I read, a, uh, I think, a Skeptic's Dictionary post on um, the uh, Shroud of Turin. And the, the, the guy who wrote it, just perfect skeptic's fashion, was basically said, you know, even if you do prove that this is Jesus' burial shroud, right. that Jesus Christ was buried in this burial shroud, it doesn't prove that he's the son of God. <laughs> so it will never be settled. Yeah, that's not the point of the Shroud of Turin. Yeah. I mean, I don't think anyone's saying that this proves that, yeah. I think they're just trying to get, well, there are two big mysteries. One is, is it uh, authentic as a shroud? Mm-hmm. Who is it? Or if it's not, how how is this thing made? The second thing is called the question of questions. Yeah. So uh, should we take another break? Yeah. All right. We'll talk about that and some other carbon-14 testing and DNA testing. Right for this. Hey there, are you thirsty? Well, before you take a sip, have you stopped to think about what's in your water? Many conventional bottled waters contain PFAS, harmful substances known as forever chemicals. But you can drink water as clean as nature intended. Richard's rainwater collects 100% pure, refreshing drops of rain. Yes, it really is rain, everybody. This rain is caught clean before it hits the ground or becomes polluted with pesticides and contaminants commonly found in groundwater. Yep, Richard's rainwater is naturally pure with no need for harsh chemicals or additives. That means no added fluoride, no chlorine, no forever chemicals, no microplastics, no nothing. And you can enjoy the clean taste of Richard's still rainwater and the long-lasting cold-pressured bubbles of Richard's sparkling rainwater. Just visit richardsrainwater.com to find a retailer near you. That's richardsrainwater.com. And we even have a special offer, don't we, Josh? Yeah, text STUFF to 2512-928887 and you'll get $2 off a 12-pack case of Richard's rainwater. Sip the sky. All right, game off. Let's pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go. Because in Monopoly Go, you can team up with your friends for timed tournaments where you work together to build up each other's boards. It's very nice. That's right. And the more you win together, the more awesome prizes you unlock. And there's so much to get. I'm talking about unique stickers that you can trade with friends to complete albums for big prizes, cool new playing pieces to travel the boards with, or hilarious emojis for taunting friends when you smash their buildings or heist their vaults. Plus, Monopoly Go feels new and exciting every day with constantly changing tournaments and challenges, like digging for treasure or a robot pachinko machine. And there's always new timed events that help you win big, like massive multipliers for everything you win or rent frenzies. That's right. There's always something fun to discover in Monopoly Go. So get off the bench and go download it now for free on Google Play or the App Store. Game on! 
Should we start with the, uh, let's start with carbon testing. Yeah, let's go chronologically. Uh, 1988, late 1980s. I'm a junior in high school. Sonny Crockett was coked to the gills. I have long bangs hanging in my face. What was I doing? I think I'm a skater, but I'm really not. Same here. (laughs) I tried pretty hard, but I was never that great. No, I was okay. I was wearing jams. Sure. You were like a little version of me. Did you wear jams? <laughs> yeah, we awesome. all did. Did you ever wear skids or wear those like past your or bef- yeah past your time? I don't know skids. They were like pajama pants. Oh, well, clear, they're clear and simple. <laughs> Definitely not. Yeah. They had footies. No, no. Oh, but I mean, like they were what you would think of as flannel pajama pants, but they were to be worn like pants. Hmm. They were a weird fad. Not as weird as that Zeke Cavaricis, but they were weird. I saw a guy. I try not to judge people on their appearance, but I saw a guy getting on a Delta flight okay. a few weeks ago wearing uh, a pair of oversized baggy fleece Batman pajama pants mm-hmm. with these huge fuzzy animal slippers and like a Porsche or a Lamborghini t-shirt mm-hmm. and mirrored sunglasses. Oh, how cool. Just like a 40-something-year-old man. So cool. I couldn't figure it out. And that man was Val Kilmer. <laughs> It might have been. Uh, all right. Carbon 14 dating, uh, 1988. The Vatican said, go forth and date this thing. Right. Um, that's what I kind of love about how the Vatican's treated this over the years of, they've always been like, you know, you got some new scientific methods. Let's bring them in here. Yeah. And talk We're about We're the it. Vatican. We love science. Yeah. So, uh, they sent it to three different labs, uh, University of Oxford radiocarbon accelerator unit. Uh, University of Arizona, go Wildcats, and the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology. Go Mountaineers. <laughs> Probably so. Uh, go Utsis. <laughs> yodelers. <laughs> uh, and this is an interesting case because they, all three of them found that the shroud material that they were given dated between 1260 and 1390. Right. Long, long, long after the Jesus of history lived. And, perhaps not coincidentally, Right around the time when the shroud first shows up in the documented record. Yeah, so that combined with the fact that it was much after Jesus' time led a lot of people in the late 80s to say, case closed, this thing is certainly not the burial cloth of Jesus. No. Now, when somebody comes out with um, findings like this, the other side sets about trying to take it out as much as possible, every way they can. Yeah. There's a lot of really um, interesting backwards, twisting, turning arabesques <laughs> lo- that, that involve logic yeah. in a lot of a lot of instances. But with this, one of the first ones that came out was, well, you, you guys, you, the this, this sample was tainted somehow. Yeah. That, that was a big one. And then the scientists have said, well, how? How is the sample tainted? And this is where some of the stretchingness comes in sometimes, right? One of the, one of the, um, Accusations is that the samples were tainted by contemporary carbon deposits, which threw off the readings of the carbon fourteen. Right? Okay. So there's a very famous thing that I think maybe um, Walter McCrone came up with, but it shows it's a graph and it shows how much 20th century carbon it would take to t- to taint the 
results from the fourth, from the forties CE yeah. to the fourteenth uh, century CE, mm-hmm. it would take an amount of carbon contamination that weighs more than the shroud itself weighs. Okay. So that was probably not the case. Yeah, another thing that um, some people kind of poo-pooed about this study was they gave them three control fabrics to test alongside. Mm-hmm. Um, all old stuff, Egyptian mummy, a medieval Nubian tomb, and a medieval French uh, vestment, ecclesiastical vestment. And all the data from those three, from the three different institutions, came out the same. Right. Whereas... There was a span of about 150 years on the Shroud of Turin between the three, and what they released was the mean of these three. Right. Uh, and so a lot of people said, well, hey, your your fancy science tests <laughs> nailed these controls, all three of them, right. but there's a big uh, variance in the Shroud of Turin's results. So they go back to the, your stuff was tainted. Another criticism that was proposed was that they had taken a patch from the medieval era that had been uh-huh. used to patch up the shroud because the shroud actually was in a fire once. Yeah. When it was in uh, France, I believe, still, um, it was folded up in a box and the the chapel that it was in caught fire and the box caught fire and the shroud, uh, miraculously, sorry, didn't <laughs> didn't burn. It just kind of got some scorch marks and melted a little bit. Yeah, but, but you're still there. Survived. Right? Yeah, they are. Um, but they survived this fire. So what the critics of the carbon fourteen test said was that well, you guys chose a part that had been patched up around this time right. during the medieval age. Ipso facto, you got it wrong. And then they probably said, well, why'd you give us that part? Well, they didn't. The carbon fourteen report supposedly says that they specifically avoided any part that showed any stitching right. or patches or anything like that. That they they did not take a sample from that. that the, and these were very small samples too. Right. It's not like they cut off the bottom third of it. No. And sent it out for testing. Right. Um. All right. So back to what you described. Well, you quoted from the description of physicist Paolo de Lazzaro as the question of questions. Mm-hmm. All right, forget the fact that this could be the shroud that Jesus was buried in. Right. Forget all this stuff. <clears throat> like, how was this thing made? Because no one's been able to recreate this, like, come up with a process that could recreate this thing because it's got a weird color and it's just... No one can replicate it. Right. And the reason why they're having trouble replicating it is it's not just the color that's that's tough to replicate. They're finding that if you look at the places where it is colored, yeah. um, the thread itself is only just a little bit saturated with this color. Yeah, like it soaked like, in a very like thin amount, right? Right. This is what's throwing everybody off, apparently. To me, this is the whole key that the the mystery swings on. If you were an artist and you were creating this using pigment, your your paint should just soak right through at least one thread. This stuff is literally not deep enough to penetrate in an individual fiber, let alone all the way through like a paint would. Yeah, 0.7 micrometers, one thirtieth the diameter of an individual fiber. That's a that's a very that's shallow. Crazy. Um, pigmentation, right? Mm-hmm. So this is where the big stumbling block is. They're like, how would you do this? One of the proposals is that um, there's this technique called bas-relief 
I always thought it was boss relief until yesterday. I did too. But it's like, uh, if you take a, an image and you carve it, um, and this is actually pretty well known in the medieval era, you can make it out of metal or, um, stone and you heat it up and you can scorch an image on fabric. Yeah. The thing is to make an, a scorch that's as shallow as the Shroud of Turin's image is, it, it would, it would, have to occur the shroud would have to lay on the bas relief bust for something like just a minute fraction of a second right and no one can figure out how you would get a good image like you have on the shroud of turin right if you just if the the linen just dropped and was pulled off in less than a second no one knows how that could possibly be done yeah and that's just one like there have been many many attempts to replicate this over the years, either through science or through people using uh, arts and and uh, materials available mm-hmm. in the medieval times. Right. Um, something called acid pigmentation. There's actually a kind of photography, very, very primitive photography. I saw that. In medieval times. Uh-huh. Um, something called dust transfer, uh, the bas-relief, and then some have contended it's a, a malleard reaction taking place. Okay, explain. Well, I don't really know fully how they explain that, and I don't think it held up, but, I mean, that's the reaction in cooking, mm-hmm. like when you're browning like a meat. Gotcha. So, I don't know. Well, that that actually deepens <laughs> the mystery rather than, <laughs> rather than solve it. Other people say it could have been burial ointments, uh, ultraviolet radiation. In the Bible, in Matthew, it says the earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. After the crucifixion, so geologists said it might have been an earthquake that happened, and maybe that threw off the the radiocarbon dating, and maybe there was a blast of uh, neutrons. Right. So you that say burn ge- this image into the fabric. Yeah, and those are geologists, legitimate geologists, but they're also extraordinarily controversial, and most people in their field shun them. Wouldn't even talk to them at a cocktail party. They geologists for Jesus. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> they're, what they're talking about is something called piezonuclear fission. Yeah, and the idea is is that like if you crush a rock, the force of it can actually break the atoms apart, releasing a bunch of neutrons. Right. And this Italian geologist's idea is that this earthquake that happened when Jesus died um, released these neutrons and created this irradiated image of him on his burial shroud. And that's if you take that one line from the Bible completely literally. Right. And suppose that they didn't mean like, you know, in a symbolic way, the earth shook. Yeah. But even if it did, there's no evidence whatsoever that there is such a thing as piezonuclear fission. Right. And then secondly, it even says that it shook when he um, was crucified. Right. So he wouldn't have even had the burial shroud around him at the time. There's oh, yeah, I didn't a lot of that. holes in that one in particular. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the, it is, it's a theory. And that's another thing about the Shroud of Turin, too. It's just learning about all the different hypotheses and all the different suggestions that people have come up with and all the holes that they poke in those suggestions. Yeah. That in and of itself is fascinating to me. Yeah. The, uh, the physicist DeLazzaro tried the, the ultraviolet light experiment and he basically said, you know, the, the, the amount of ultraviolet light you need exceeds, quote, exceeds a maximum power release by all ultraviolet light sources available today. So how in the world could someone have done this on purpose in medieval times? So, Chuck, the um, carbon-14 and the fabric analysis, those were huge, big landmark cases, 1981 and 1988, right? Yes. And then 
I think things just kind of everybody bickered for the next 12, 25 years. Yeah, it's a lot of bickering. And um, <laughs> finally, somebody's like, well, hey, man, we've got this great DNA testing stuff we can do. Uh, let's do let's do something. Let's do it to it to the shroud of Turin with the DNA <laughs> tests. Yeah, and so what they found out, um, they found out a lot of interesting things that didn't, in the end, lead to any sort of verification of fake or authentic at all. Mm. But interesting stuff nonetheless. Right. Uh, one is that this thing got around, um, or at the very least, um, was touched by a lot of people from all over the world. Uh, and in return. It touched a lot of people around the world. I would say so. Um, you know, Europe, uh, Middle East, India, Africa it had DNA from a lot of folks, and it had a lot of plant DNA, too. They tested both. Yeah, and a lot of weird DNA, plant DNA showed up on it, right? So you've got, like, black locust trees from Appalachia and North America. Yeah. That was a little surprising. It's weird. Apparently a, a very rare Asian pear tree. Okay. Um, stuff that's found in India. Yeah. Um, Mediterranean clover. That makes sense. Well, yeah, and so does with the human DNA. They found the the most, the heaviest concentration of DNA was from people in the Middle East around where Jesus was buried. Mm-hmm. So that kind of makes sense. Um but here's the one I don't get. They said that the oldest DNA was from India, which they say suggests that it could have been manufactured in India because Indians and Europeans didn't like have a lot of contact back then. Right. But then I saw someone trying to refute that in the same article, and this is from Live Science, by the way, um, saying that it could have been uh, when it was on public display is where that Indian DNA came from. That's where all this DNA could have come from. Well, yeah, but they said that the oldest DNA was from India. So, again, it's just like every time someone uncovers something, there's just another little mystery to it, it seems like. Sure. Unless you go back to the carbon dating, and those scientists are like, no, this has stood up to scrutiny over the years. Yeah, and I actually saw a BBC um, little documentary on the uh, the Shroud of Turin, and they went and visited somebody who was there at, par- at, at Oxford when they did the carbon dating, and they were like, "No, he was wa- his mind seemed wide open at the very least, right? But he was definitely like, no, it was all legitimate, and I've never heard an objection to it that that panned out, right? You know, um, you got anything else? I don't. Do you? Well, I think you can probably sit here for hours mm-hmm. and hours, yeah, and hours, <laughs> okay." But we're not going to. If you yes. if it has floated your boat, there's plenty of stuff for you to go read. You can start with a couple of great articles that we used. Um, one from Nat Geo, Why Shroud of Turin Secrets Continue to Elude Science. That was great. And a live science, like you said, article called, Is It a Fake? DNA Testing Deepens Mystery Shroud of Turin. And plenty of other stuff. Go check out um, Walter McCrone's site as well. He's got his own site on the Shroud of Turin. Yeah. Oh, it's by the way, I mentioned to mention this. I meant to mention this. Syndenology is what it's called. The official study of the shroud. Really? It has its own ology? S I N D O N ology. Nice. We all know how to spell that. O L O G I E. Right. <laughs> uh well if you want to know more about the shroud, like we said, go start searching and welcome to the rabbit hole. 
Go so see the thing. Yeah. In person. Why not? I totally would if I was near Turin. There's steamers that go to Italy still. <laughs> uh, and since we said Italy, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this uh, Divorce Upcoming. Hey guys, my wife Jade and I are huge fans of the show and listen almost every night before bed. But we don't like each other. <laughs> uh, we have our favorite SYSK moments, but one that made us both laugh like crazy was Chuck's nerdgasm toward the end of the Action Figures episode. We rewound the podcast and listened to that part so often, I decided to take a clip, uh, make a clip of it, and set it as my alarm clock tone. Uh, sound files attached, it's very short, but played on a loop 15 to 20 times at 7.30 a.m., and you will get the full effect. Now we wake up to your voices, as well as falling asleep to them. Nice. Uh, long may your great show continue. David, uh, he didn't leave his wife's name, but David and wife. Oh, yeah, Jade. Uh, in Newcastle, England. And let's just play this really quick. Let's play it like five times to get the full effect. Uh, let's hear it. Wow. <laughs> that would wake me up. Man. I'd sit bold upright and be like, not again. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, good luck with the divorce. <laughs> Thanks. Sorry, Jade and David. Thanks, Jade and David. You could also bring them together, you know? What, in uh, opposition against us? Sure. Okay. Uh, thanks, Dade and David and Jade, or Dade. That's your couple name now. And Jaded. <laughs> um, yeah, either one's good. I like it. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us like Jade and David did, yeah, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast, or I'm also at Josh Um Clark. Chuck's at Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and at Stuff You Should Know on Facebook.com. Uh, you can send us an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web. StuffYouShouldKnow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Are you thirsty? Well, Richard's rainwater is caught clean before it even hits the ground. Rain is naturally pure, so there's no need for harsh chemicals or additives. Richard's rainwater contains no chlorine, no forever chemicals, no microplastics, no nothing. Enjoy the smooth, clean taste of still rainwater or the cold pressured bubbles of sparkling rainwater. Just visit richardsrainwater.com to find a retailer near you. That's richardsrainwater.com. And for a coupon, text STUFF to 251-292-8887 and receive $2 off a 12-pack case of Richard's Rainwater. Hey, if you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Use promo code STUFF. 20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month.